Many of you have written to say that you would like a podcast episode that features what to do with kids who have neurodivergence. I remember someone describing to me what it was like to find out that their child was autistic. She said the doctor explained it this way. You got pregnant and you thought that you were taking a trip to Hawaii. So you packed a suitcase full of bathing suits and shorts and sunglasses and snorkel gear. And then the baby was born, and actually, you landed in Finland in the middle of winter. The feeling when we face neurodivergence is how ill-equipped we are to meet those challenges. Sometimes what happens is we realize that the school structure or the life that we thought we would be leading no longer supports the needs of our children. Today's episode features Debbie Reber from Tilt Parenting. She has such a child, and she's here to share the strategies behind creating a wonderful life for homeschooling when your child is neurodivergent. Today's guest is Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting. Debbie tells us that today more than 20% of children are in some way neurologically atypical, or as she likes to say, differently wired. And because the world isn't set up to accommodate their unique way of being, these exceptional kids and the parents raising them struggle to navigate that journey. This was Debbie's situation as she raised her son, Asher, who is now an adult. She spent years figuring out how to best support him in school and in life and wound up homeschooling. Many of the websites and organizations that did exist did not speak to her. In 2016, she decided to create her own website called Tilt Parenting. She's hoping that no parent has to walk an unmarked path like she did, and her goal is to help frustrated and stuck parents feel connected and grounded as they chart a path that feels positive and hopeful for the whole family. Debbie Reber is an MA and a parenting activist, best-selling author, podcast host, and speaker. Debbie's most recent book is Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World. Debbie's Tilt Parenting Podcast is the top-performing podcast for parents, caregivers, educators, and professionals raising and supporting neurodivergent children with more than 5 million downloads. She spoke at TEDx Amsterdam and delivered a talk entitled, Why the Future Will Be Differently Wired. Please join me in welcoming Debbie Reber. Welcome, Debbie. I'm so glad you're here for the podcast. Thank you, Julie. I'm really looking forward to this. I enjoyed your book, Differently Wired, uh, the subtitle, A Parent's Guide to Raising an Atypical Child with Confidence and Hope, just felt so good to read. I know that in our homeschooling community, a lot of parents actually choose home education because they have kids that you call differently wired. I know that you chose homeschooling for your lovely son, Asher, and I wonder if we could just start with you sharing a bit of that story, how you wound up homeschooling, a little bit about what you discovered about Asher. Well, I will say that homeschooling chose us, I think would be more appropriate because 
it was not part of my plan. And I was very much a reluctant homeschooler, but I was raising this kid who, when, you know, in preschool, we started realizing, oh, this is not going to be your typical journey here. And (laughs) we'd get lots of advice from teachers and you're going to need this kind of school or you should be doing this. And mostly because Asher is complicated, was very intense as a little person. And, you know, we discovered is twice exceptional and has ADHD and some other goodies going on, neurological differences. And so we tried to do the regular school system. We tried three schools, in fact, in three years. And a few friends had suggested homeschooling is probably a better fit, but I was not interested in that until really we, you know, our family had this opportunity to move abroad. I was still researching schools in the Netherlands. And this same friend was like, Debbie, you (laughs) should be homeschooling. This is not a kid, you know, that you're going to find a great fit for in another country. So I did start homeschooling in third grade and I did it for, I guess, five, six years through, through the end of eighth grade. It evolved over time. It just got better and better every year. And it was really, you know, so transformational for me as a parent, because it allowed me to really get to know who my kid really is as a human, as a learner, and kind of really do all this great work on myself about reframing my thoughts around neurodiversity. Yeah, you wrote, we embraced and accepted who Asher is while exploring alternative ways of being a family. I loved that statement because I think it points to the idea that we have an idealization around being a parent and what a family is. Can you describe a couple of ways that you changed your beliefs around what it means to be a parent and a family? Yeah, I mean, I think... We were surrounded by families when we were living in Seattle at the time that really were living life the way I envisioned, right? Um, Doing the after-school soccer and doing these camps and these certain types of family vacations and all of the things. And I felt a lot of pressure and then frustration and you know, just feeling like a failure, frankly, when I wasn't able to make that vision come to life for our family. And so there was something about, I think moving, it was such a drastic thing. You don't have to move to a foreign country to experience (laughs) this, just to be clear. But there was something about stripping away all of the expectations and the pressures and And that comparison of seeing what everyone else was doing and feeling like we needed to do it too, it was so freeing. And so we just started realizing, oh, we don't have to do this. Like my kid doesn't need to be in three after-school activities or my kid doesn't need to have this kind of a social life right now because that's not going to work. Or we can really just make up our own rules. And if that means you know, our own little rituals of going to the coffee shop and then coming home and playing Minecraft for five hours or whatever it looks like, um, (laughs) then that works for us. And we don't need to worry about what other people think. So there was just this huge freedom in, in not caring so much about this outside perspective. And I think being immersed in a new place without community actually forced us to do that. And, but it was a great gift. 
Yeah. In fact, I love how you just described not caring and then you include five hours of Minecraft. <laughs> there is such a stigma, isn't there, around um, not just screens, but activities that kids do what appear to be excessively. And yet some of these neuroatypical kids really do have passions that you talked about your son having this ADHD deep focus that state that he get in, gets into. And I remember that with my oldest son. I have five kids and my oldest son, Noah, wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until he was an adult, but he had all the symptoms his entire life. And because there was no diagnosis, I just accommodated who he was. He never did go to school until much older. Even so, I knew that I was dealing with something that was different than what I saw around me, partly because he was just, um, he had so much energy. He mm -hmm. could just do so much more than a lot of kids. And he had a lot of confidence in his body's capacity. So climbing a tree, walking on an eight foot wall, um, climbing out a window onto the roof, you know, making his own food at a very young age. Like there was just a huge amount of confidence in his own agency. Mm -hmm. And my husband and I used to always say, maturity and age are on his side because the sooner he can get access and be in charge, the happier he'll be. What was your first clue that Asher had this neurodivergence or at least wasn't the way that you had anticipated? What stood out to you about his temperament and his behaviors? Well, I mean, from a very, very early age, Asher was I mean, Asher was a colicky baby. So even then, and I think I probably said this in the, in the book, I felt like I was parenting a baby who was a really angry old man in a baby's body. Like <laughs> there was just no sense of contentment ever. And just this perpetual frustration really was what it felt like. And, and then the, so we just knew it was just a bigger more intense experience. Everything seemed bigger. The meltdown seemed bigger. The, the rigidity seemed more also very physical, although not necessarily with confidence or, you know, there was a lot of like, Oh, you know, what's going <laughs> to happen here kind of thing. Um, but at a very early age before Asher turned three, you know, he was reading and had taught himself to read. And we're like, oh, that's really interesting. And that's not typical. And so we were just kind of like constantly surprised by this kid and started to just kind of piece together all these really amazing strengths and how cool is this? And, oh, but there's this other side that comes with all of this. And so it was just this ongoing discovery. But I think the things that were like the cues right away where that kind of being really strong willed, um, a very intense experience, sensory stuff. Like there were a lot of things that were going on that seemed just bigger than what our, our friends were dealing with, with their kids. Yeah. I know for me that I don't think I realized there was anything that unusual about Noah until I had a second child and she was so mellow. <laughs> and I was like, oh, some people get this kind of baby. That's mm -hmm. interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, Noah was not colicky so much, but he was just a very intense, uh, intensely uh, ambitious child. He just needed a lot of stimulation all the time. And I've known because of five kids that there are other kids who just are content to sort of be more like a potted plant. They'll sit, they'll observe, they'll play with a toy for a while. And Noah was just so 
aggressively going the opposite direction of me, no matter where we were. I wondered, you talked a little bit about ADHD. I remember taking Noah in for a diagnosis when he was quite young, but all the testing was centered around behaviors in school and he was homeschooled. Mm. So I was never given a confident diagnosis. Do they still use that same technique for diagnosing today? How could a homeschooler discover if their child should be diagnosed and what kind of testing is available? Do you know? I don't know what the exact test is. Like in, you know, with autism, there is the ADOS, which is used and that's kind of like considered to be the gold standard. I don't know that there is one specific ADHD test. And I, I believe that ADHD, it's a very real thing for certain. And there are many environments that, that make some, that kind of spark symptoms for someone with ADHD. So it could very well be that homeschooling, you wouldn't know because you were able to provide an environment that supported the way that your child learned and needed to move or process or think and do all of the things. I mean, that was something, I don't think I realized Asher's ADHD because Asher can hyper-focus. And I saw this incredible ability to really zone in and I, I didn't think of Asher as this like rambunctious kind of messy kid, you know, the, the stereotype right. that we right. have. And so I did even push back. I'm like, I don't know if this is accurate. Um, and then w- when we started homeschooling and I, and I saw the way that Asher needed to kind of think and process and do things, and it was like an, a full body experience. I was like, okay, I can kind of say how this would be challenging in a classroom situation. But I think, you know, especially when kids are younger, if, if we can accommodate and the way that they are learning and navigating tasks and doing things, if it works for them, I don't think it's a problem. It's just when the demands exceed their ability to regulate or to, you know, really kind of spark their executive function deficits, that's when I think the real challenges come. And that's when having a better sense, is this ADHD? Are there potential interventions that we could use to support some of these, you know, challenges, that's when it would be more helpful. What are some of those interventions that you find useful and how does a parent make that judgment call about which ones to use? Well, I mean, I think the kind of common practices or belief is that it's, it's often a blend of therapy or CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and some sort of medical medication intervention seems to be the best protocol. Um, I know from talking with Ned Hollowell, who's, you know, an expert on ADHD, and he says that only 70% of people with ADHD even respond to medication. And so, and and my child is one who does not. Um, Hmm. And in fact, Asher was not interested for many, many years. And at a certain point in high school, we thought, well, Let's see, because if it is effective, that could be really helpful. And we have not been able to find one that works. Um, and so there are, there are, you know, there's therapy, there is better understanding your own body. There's a lot of hacking yourself, right? Understanding where your challenges lie and then figuring out what works for you as an individual to support yourself around some of those things that are harder, like time management or impulsivity and um, staying focused and not getting distracted by the 35 tabs open on your computer while you're trying to do an assignment. And I think that's a really individual, you know, process. 
And I'll just add that there is a more work happening in this area of it's like interoception or just like body balance and, and that, mm. you know, and this is something that Ned talks about in his most recent book, ADHD 2.0, that there are kind of brain exercises you can do even, you know, standing on one leg while tying your shoe or things that are kind of can help the brain make connections in different ways. And so that's an interesting area of growth, I think, that could provide some support. And then of course, there's all the other things, right? There's making sure you get good exercise, making sure you get good sleep. Like all of those things can really make a big difference for someone with ADHD in terms of helping them focus and stay regulated. You write about other kinds of neurodivergence as well. How important is a diagnosis and what are some of the clues to a parent that they should get an evaluation? Well, such a great question. I think that evaluations and assessments with someone who is good at attuning to the uniqueness of our kids can be really helpful if we have a child who's struggling in certain environments or in social situations or whatever is going on. I think diagnoses are information first and foremost. They don't tell us who our child is. They give us some context. They give other adults and teachers context for areas of challenge and also areas of strength. I've heard from so many adults, you know, you mentioned your son was diagnosed, you know, as an adult, so many adults now are discovering their autism, their ADHD. And there's a lot of like, oh my gosh, if I had only known this earlier about myself. And so I think there's great value in that way too, to really help kids have a sense of you know, understanding about who they are and not think of their challenges as faults about them or, you know, that they're not good enough or smart enough or there's something wrong with them. And so I think for that reason, it can be really helpful. And then I'll just say the last thing, I know a lot of your listeners are homeschoolers, but in a traditional school setting, having a diagnosis can get you support and services that could really, you know, help your child in the classroom. So I think as long as you go into the process, not thinking it's the solution to anything, but it's information that can help you better provide support for this child, I think it can be such a powerful thing. I I really appreciate you saying that. I do know that that was when it became meaningful for my son was in college and they did provide him extra time for tests, someone to take notes for him, which blew my mind. I did yeah, not even know great. that existed. You told a very powerful story about your son. He was apologizing for a behavior and you insisted multiple times, it's okay, it's okay, that's not a problem, no apology necessary. And then he made the comment that he apologized a lot when he was at school. Can you talk a little about that feeling of um, failure or lack that comes when you're in an ill-suited environment to your neuroatypical behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was such a, I still remember everything about that moment when Asher said that to me and my heart really sank to hear him say that, you know, I, I used to have to apologize all the time for anything that I did related to my ADHD in school. And in some ways I wasn't shocked because Certainly one of the schools we pulled Asher out of, we pulled them out because it was 
not a good fit. And I knew that the culture in the classroom was toxic and that the teacher was not into my kid. Like that teacher Mm -hmm. really thought Asher was problematic and the other students picked up on that and kind of followed suit. So, uh, that was really rough and yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, we won't go down that road, but anyway, I know that Asher and many kids do this, you know, internalize this idea that I'm a bad kid. I mean, when you get sent to the principal's office, you're asked to leave the room until you can calm down or you're, you know, those things repeatedly take a toll and you feel like I'm a, I'm, I'm a screw up. There's something wrong with me. And, you know, at at those formative years when you really just want to play and hang out with your friends and have fun and learn. I mean, Asher loves to learn. And that was the thing that was so crushing is to, you know, and isn't unique to Asher's experience. Like, but when you get this message day in and day out that you're doing it wrong, there's something wrong with you that has a big impact. And we see a lot of kids, you know, coming out of bad school situations with PTSD and it can take a long time to recover from that. And sometimes people don't recover from it. Like it's really goes deep. Yeah. In fact, when you talked about giftedness, I had a reaction to that because I remember being in public school and being tested for my IQ repeatedly to get into the quote, mentally gifted minors program, the MGM program in the 1970s. And I kept coming up one IQ point short of getting in. Meanwhile, I had all these friends who were in the program who were bored, hated it. I couldn't understand why a person like me who was motivated couldn't get in and why these kids who were in it didn't value it. Uh, On top of it, I think I probably have undiagnosed ADHD. I had all kinds of problems remembering dates, turning in homework, keeping track of my flute and my purse. And that stress still lives in me Mm -hmm. at age 61. Like it doesn't go away. The feeling of having to apologize for what you cannot manage uh, stays with you a very long time. So I wondered if you could talk about giftedness, the pressure of that label on top of the disappointment of not being gifted. Let's say you have multiple children and one child is considered gifted and the others are not. What does that mean to the gifted child? What does it mean to the others? Uh, I do remember actually um, having a sibling with that label who claimed that it felt oppressive because the expectations were so high. How do you see it? Yeah. So, so interesting. You bring this up. I just, for my podcast, interviewed Gail Post yesterday and she writes, she has a new book out about giftedness and it is such a complicated thing. And, you know, when the word gifted was first mentioned about Asher by a friend who's an educational psychologist and knew Asher, I was like, I'm not going to be that parent who kind of, you know, starts flinging the G word around and like, you know, thinks my kid, my three-year-old is going to Stanford, you know. Um, I think giftedness is very complicated because to be gifted is a neurodivergence. Like it is, it, there comes with giftedness a lot of other challenges and unique needs. And so, and it's really misunderstood by so many people who don't experience giftedness. And so there's this idea that it's just, you know, these people think that they're better or whatever, your kid's so precious and, or you've got it made, this is so easy, you're so lucky. But really to be gifted, 
is really complicated. Gifted kids, they're asynchronous in their development. And so Hmm. oftentimes they're, you know, their social emotional age may be so vastly different from their cognitive ability. And that, you know, chasm can be really challenging. These kids are often very sensitive, overly empathetic. They have existential angst from a very young age. Like there's a lot of challenge that comes with being gifted. And so I think that puts pressure on families of gifted kids because we feel you know, and Asher is one of these kids. So I, I, I speak from experience. We just feel like we can't really celebrate the good stuff because we don't want to be seen like we're bragging yet. There's no sympathy for the really challenging stuff. Hmm. And then how do you find a fit for this child educationally, especially again, when often this asynchronicity can be really tricky. Um, so I think going back to your original question, I think it's just an acknowledgement that being gifted is a neural divergence, just like, you know, if you look at the bell curve, right? If you're way on this one end of the bell curve, you have special needs, like someone who's at the complete opposite end has special needs. And we're fine accommodating those, but we often think we don't need to do that with this other group, but they have as, as much of a right as anybody else to really have their intelligence challenged, to have their unique learning styles, uh, met and supported. Did you know it is the 23rd year anniversary of Brave Rider? I started this company in January 2000, which always tickles my fancy because that's why I remember the date. (laughs) It was so auspicious at the time. But it blows my mind to think about the literal hundreds of thousands of families that have been helped around the world by our Brave Rider program. It all started with a product I called the Writer's Jungle. And when I wrote it, I wrote it with this in mind. I was wondering how to help parents be able to teach their kids to write without inciting rebellion and tears. I didn't turn to educator manuals or textbooks or the way teachers teach writing. Instead, I focused my attention on how I had learned to write under my mother's guidance who happens to be a professional author who's written more than 70 books in her professional career. What I know about writing is that those people who want to be paid for their writing learn in a completely different manner than how we were taught in school. In other words, when you go to a writer's conference, they don't talk to you about grammar and punctuation and spelling. They don't talk to you about formats. Sometimes they'll talk to you about the structure of a genre, like the structure of a novel or the structure of a nonfiction book, but they focus first and foremost on one single question, and it's this one. So what have you got to say? (laughs) Why should I care? In other words, the message, the meaning, the voice of the writer is primary, and the strategies that you learn when you are in these professional writing environments are oriented to putting you in touch with the insights you want to express, whether that's a story in the fictional world, or it's a how-to book, or it's a memoir, or it's journalism. In other words, writing when you're a professional has to do with communicating a message first and foremost, 
We can slap on the format later. We can hire copy editors to ensure that the punctuation is accurate and the spellings are right. But what we can't do, the one thing we can't substitute for all that copy editing is the voice of the writer. There's only one person who can bring forth to the page the insights that are unique to the writer. So as I thought about teaching our kids, I realized that what worked best for me as a child and what was working well with my own five homeschooled kids was to help put them in touch with having something to say. I devised strategies that I thought would work well with kids. You know, this isn't an adult audience. So I understand that children are not yet fluent in the mechanics of writing, spelling, punctuation, grammar, and format. And yet, don't their ideas, their thoughts, and their insights deserve to be preserved and read by an interested audience? That's the foundation of my newly revised program called Growing Brave Writers. It's not available anywhere, but in the Brave Writers store, we will leave you a link in the show notes to make it easy to get there. This program will last you for years. Here's why. It is designed to be processes that you use more than once. So when we talk about keenly observing detail, you will use that whether your child is in a co-op or doing homework from school or trying to describe something beautiful in your house for a homeschool writing assignment. When we talk about free writing, that section of the manual will serve you in good stead all the way through high school. The revision strategies will eliminate pain, tears, and the feeling of failure that attends so much of the revision work that kids are used to in school. I invite you to take a look. We have a sample to download, and I hope that you will give your children the gift of a solid foundation in writing. Growing Brave Writers is the place to begin. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. Do you think that this notion that giftedness is equivalent to a kind of academic or scholastic um, acumen is the problem? Because we tend to, you know, revere that kind of straight A student ideal. And if we saw it as neurodivergence, maybe we would be more willing. I know in my high school, that's what they were trying to do is accommodate this unmotivated group of kids who were smart. I was in all the honors classes uh, and doing fine, but wasn't allowed in this other kind of class. And, and yet they said it was to motivate these kids who were too smart for the other classes. It It's an interesting um, sort of conundrum to me. It's something obviously I've thought about for decades because I wonder if there's a kind of burden that gets attached to a child that it's almost like being a redhead and saying you want to dye your hair. Everybody tells you, but your hair is so beautiful, you shouldn't dye it. Mm -hmm. It's like you don't get to have the right to not use your intelligence, We right? It must be used for academic achievement. It can't just be a feature of you the same way that you might choose you know, to be interested in sports instead. Do you see what I mean about that term? A hundred percent. And, you know, this is something, again, Gail talked about in her book, which I really appreciated, is the pressures that parents feel. I'll just bring it back to parents first to make sure that their kids reach their potential. And then the pressure that kids who know they've been identified as gifted because right. of this or that tool feel. 
um, to succeed. And sure, there are gifted kids who, you know, start college at 14 and do all the things, but there are just as many more probably people who have been identified as gifted who really struggle. And then that burden feels, you know, that unrealized potential. And I really don't like that word potential because I think we can weaponize it. Um, But that, that pressure creates a lot of challenges. And I think it's more common for gifted adults to, to struggle greatly. And so, you know, getting this diagnosis of giftedness, it is certainly not a fast pass to success. It is oftentimes it's not necessarily something to be celebrated. It's like, oh, wow, um, we have to be really careful how we navigate this so we can help this kid reach a potential that is really them living a, a self-actualized life as yes. opposed to, you know, you know, figuring out fusion, whatever, you know, like all the things right. that we kind of ascribe to this idea of giftedness. Yeah, because the intelligence piece is only one feature, the ability to stick to a task, the ability to innovate, the ability to be creative. These are, there are all different facets and features Mm -hmm. of what intelligence can be. And we also know that um, some of these neurodivergent kids, they have uh, brain systems that are incompatible, like a slow processor, Mm -hmm. but high intelligence. So we expect intelligence to go with quickness, but perhaps the student is struggling with visual processing or audio processing or needs more time to arrive at the answer. And so we assume the word slow means you're not smart. Quick means you are, and yet you can be smart and slow. Those are possible together. Would you agree? Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, Scott Barry Kaufman wrote a great book called Ungifted, and he was identified as you know, being someone who needed special ed because he was, you know, he had some processing issues that were undiagnosed and he really wanted to be in the gifted classes and they wouldn't let him. And he had to advocate and advocate for himself. He ultimately um, went on to go to Carnegie Mellon, but he couldn't get into the psychology program. He had to audition through opera and then transfer when he got there. And now he's, you know, a PhD, went to (laughs) Yale, like brilliant, writes for the Scientific American. And I, I love his story so much because he does talk a lot about there's more than one way to be gifted and we need to expand that definition. And you've mentioned the word creativity a few times. And I think that is a key piece of it that gifted people, it's not about acceleration or just, you know, doing higher level work. Usually it involves a more creative approach to doing anything. So it's a completely different way of experiencing the world. That makes so much sense to me. You talk about how important it is then to find a support group, a context for your family so that you don't feel like you're alienating people when you show up at a park day. I know for me that even in my own family, sometimes it was challenging. Uh, I had a daughter who came second and she was sort of looking at her older brother as a role model. She is a very diligent, disciplined kind of student, and he absolutely was an unschooled type of child. And I remember her expressing to me at one point that that was hard because she was expecting him to model what her life should look like. Of course, Mm -hmm. him being the older child. I'm wondering if how often these kids, even in their own family, sometimes can feel isolated because they're not going along to get along. And then you expand out into a homeschool co-op or a park day or a soccer league or a lacrosse team, and they're looking to fit in and they're not fitting in 
what can we do to help them be more successful? Do we only join teams of other kids who are neurodivergent or do we join those teams and let the coach know? And how do we navigate those challenging relationships that sometimes lead to bullying? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a complicated question. I think it is really important for neurodivergent kids and young adults to spend time with other people who are neurodivergent so that they don't so that they get to just be with their peers. They don't have to feel like the alien or the weirdo in the group. Mm-hmm. You know, they can be like, oh, okay. And I've seen that happen so many times when neurodivergent or gifted or two-y kids get together and they're like, okay, you are interested in talking about the same things I am. I've never met anybody like that. Like that is an incredible gift yes. to give a, a differently wired human. Um, I think it's important that just like in our families and, and in our school systems that we talk more openly about neurodivergence and not just that, but strengths and weaknesses that everybody has. Because I think there's this idea that there's everybody here who's normal, I'm using air quotes. And then if if you have one or more diagnoses, then you're over here. You're like in the outlier group. Oh. And so the job of the outlier group is to try to fit more in with this other group. And so, and there is a sense that the normal group is the good group. Like that's where you want to be. And this is, this is what society values. And this is what we're going towards. And that is not true. Like if you think about the statistics, you know, very conservatively, one in five people is neurodivergent. It, I think it's, probably one in two. Like, I think it's way higher. And so when you think about this, this isn't like a, a small group of people who, who have a couple of things that need to be tweaked so they can fit in better with the rest of us. This is just like the way we are as people. Like we are diverse as people. We all have different experiences. Our brains are all different. We all are more sensitive to certain things. We all have our own cool strengths and our own, you know, challenges and weaknesses and we're all complicated. And so I think if we can talk more openly about neurodivergence, not like it's a bad thing, but that this is, isn't this interesting? This is how your brain works. And this is how this person's brain works and, and make it more just a part of like the water we're swimming in, then people can more show up as who they are and not feel like they're, there's something wrong with them, but we're just going to we're all just doing the best we can, right? Like how can we just show up and be who we are and be seen for who we are in really any situation? Is there a script or a kind of conversation to have with a teacher or a coach or a piano teacher uh, to clue them in so that they don't treat the child with kit gloves, but on the flip side, they have some strategies that are not shame inducing or abusive? Yeah. I mean, there's no script, right? Because everybody's so different, but I think it is important to, especially for people who aren't experienced and who might be using a pretty outdated model of compliance or behavior modification to try to get a child to be a certain way that may be very counter to the way that they're wired. It's helpful to just give context for adults who are working with our kids. So, you know, a piano teacher my or or maybe a sports teacher is a better example but you know some kids really struggle with certain kinds of competition that might be really dysregulating for them um and here's so having that conversation or writing it down like this kind of thing can be really tricky for my kid here's what works you know giving them tools to support around challenges that they might see and 
But I think leading with strengths. So we don't want to say my, this, this, and this is wrong with my kid. Um, This is really hard. This is really hard. But say, you know, if there's a way to talk about like my child is so excited for piano, they're really interested in music theory and their math is a strength. So if there are ways that you can weave math into like Mm. the metronome or whatever, that would probably be really interesting. They can also sometimes get so excited that they burn out fast. So if you notice that their energy drops, this is what I would do. You know, I think we can provide context and support and really let them know, like, we know who our kids are, we know what they need, and it's going to open their eyes. I mean, when we moved to the Netherlands, it was fascinating because we hired um, Hester, this amazing woman, retired teacher, to be our Dutch teacher. So she would come and do Dutch lessons with me, and then she'd meet with Asher. And first of all, she was completely unapproving of the fact that we were homeschooling because <laughs> it's not a thing you really do in the Netherlands. No. And But once she got to know Asher, she started to be like, okay, I can see why you're homeschooling Asher. And it really pushed her. She must've been nearly 60 and, and to watch her grow and adapt because she got to respect and understand who Asher is as a learner. And she accommodated him you know, but it took a while and she had to really re- reframe everything. Mm. And I, just to watch that happen was a really cool process. That is such a perfect segue because you use the language of leaning in quite a bit when you're talking about parenting. Can you describe that transformational experience for yourself and what it means to lean in? Yeah. So Leaning in is really another way of saying surrendering or accepting. And I think it's something that we all want to aspire to as parents of any kids, really, to really kind of surrender and accept who they inherently are. Because we all go in with ideas about the way our kids are going to be or who we think they should be. And um, especially when you have a differently wired child, a lot of us spend a a fair amount of time pushing back, like still trying to, you know, do what we can and get this therapist and make this change so that we can kind of get back on the path we wanted to be on because we don't want to let go of this vision we had and this picture we had of who our child and our family was going to be. And so that tension between the reality of what's happening in this, and, and, you know, this picture we had, that is where the pain comes in for many of us. And so leaning in is about just really, first of all, doing our own work on what are those things that I'm getting hung up on and how can I, how can I let go of them so that I can show up for who this child actually is? Because when we do that, we, we can get rid of that tension, that pain point. It doesn't mean it's all easy breezy from that point on, but our child can feel respected. Our child can feel really seen. We can support them. We can really limit how triggered we get by things because we're like, well, of course this is happening. This is who they are. Like this is a really hard situation. So, um, but it's a process. I just want to say, I used to think acceptance was a destination and it's not. It's a, an intention that we set every day mm. to just show up for who this kid is and to notice when we are getting triggered or feeling frustration about something and then do our own work to process that so that we can get back to focusing on the kid that we have. 
I love in the book where you talk about how to communicate with your child's unique language. And you have a whole bunch of nonverbals like body movements, tears, cries of frustration, and then how you can express fluency in their language, hugs and cuddles, reading them a book they love, anticipating their needs, being a good listener, getting to know and anticipate their triggers. Um, And so you created a little Asher to Debbie dictionary. Mm -hmm. So I love this. You said, my behavior, going on a long walk in the park and allowing Asher to talk to his heart's content about his area of interest how Asher interprets it. My mom is interested in me and what I have to say. You know, a lot of times parents get really worn out by the level of detail these kids have mastered about their deep focused area of interest. Mm -hmm. And I've had parents say to me, I just can't take it anymore. The, The truth is you can rearrange your spice drawer while you're listening in your brain. They just need the audience. They're not necessarily needing you to feed it all back to them, but going on a walk with a dog, eyes pointed forward, both people present, child free to share to their heart's content. That is a love language, isn't it? Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, we did that for years and years and years. We still do it sometimes. Not, not as often. My child's 18 and not as interested, but yeah, but those are some of my most favorite memories of that time is those walk and talks. And, and you can, you know, after a couple hours, you can say, okay, I've got about 10 more minutes of uh, attention that I could give this topic. And then we want to move on, you know, but uh, yeah, that was, I really, I really loved those moments. And, and the fact that I, that I was able to give that, I know made a big difference to Asher. Yeah. And you have, you know, bringing him hot chocolate or a croissant, and then he knows that you're thinking about him when you aren't there, when he isn't there, taking a break from work to play a game. He knows that you'll make time for him. But then what I thought was really great is you had the opposite, Asher's behavior and how you interpret it. So he shows increasingly loud grumbles of frustration. Naturally, one of our interpretations might be, well, then we better stop him from doing that activity because he's frustrated, whether it's playing a video game or getting um, out one of his, you know, uh, let me just think for a minute, um, where he might get frustrated with doing free throw shots or something. And you think, okay, the frustration's too high. We'll just calm you down. We'll get you to stop. But you interpreted it as Asher's having a hard time and needs help moving away from the situation. So it's not just banning him from the thing. It's walking away, taking a break, maybe having a conversation and trying again. Mm -hmm. Um, He gets into his pajamas before dinner. Ah, that's a clue that he's had a difficult day and needs comfort and cuddles. Mm -hmm. Um, Asking you to spend a few minutes helping him set an intention for the next day after lights out. You're interpreting that as Asher wants to make positive changes in his behavior, but needs my help. I love this notion of the parent-child dictionary and that there's always a reason for their behavior, that they're acting from a logical and coherent place. They're not disorganized. If we could trace back why they're doing what they're doing to all the data that lives inside of their bodies, we'd be able to see a logical story there, even if it's not one we would have generated, right? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, I hear from parents a lot like, this thing happened and it came out of nowhere. And it's like, well, but did it, you know, I think if you kind of trace back, there's always a reason. There is always a reason. And it's, you know, and this is where I'll just throw uh, out another wonderful book, Brain Body Parenting. Dr. Mona Delahook talks a lot about this. Yeah. She's wonderful. And I love the work that she's doing around this 
a lot of it having to do with reinterpreting behavior, but um, this idea that there's, there, there is always a reason and it is a, an inability for a nervous system to make a better choice in that moment. Like it is a sign that this nervous system is overloaded. This child cannot do anything different right now. And so, but the, again, it, the way it's exhibited is, is really confusing and perplexing. So as parents, if we look at ourselves as interpreters and just show up with curiosity all the time and that, you know, child to parent dictionary is always going to change. It's yeah. it's not a fixed book. I'm just going to say. Um, so the way we do that, and I say this in the book, just like when I was trying to learn Dutch, you fully immerse yourself. You read all of the signs on, you know, for me, it was like the billboards and the side of public transport. Like I was just taking it all in, but we do the same with our kids and we just get curious and really start to make those connections. And then there's nothing like being seen, right? So when our kids feel that we are really understanding them on that deep level, that is just such a safe way to, to experience, you know, your, your day. And if you're someone who, who does have a sensitive nervous system, or maybe you have spent a lot of time in fight or flight to be able to really just let down your defenses because you know that you're, you're being safe and seen by your caregiver is just such a great thing. Is that what you mean by embracing the tilt? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Describe (laughs) what that is. Well, I mean, so I'll just say that the word tilt, you know, when I even started tilt parenting was just this idea of reframing everything that we need to really shift our perceptions. We need to question everything and yeah, and just kind of approach this in a whole new way. So in the book, I shared 18 tilts, which are all, you know, just different reframes and, and there are ways we can embrace all of them. They all really have to do with us. They're not about like, here's what you need to do. So your kid can do X, Y, and Z. It's like, here's what you need to look at in yourself so that you can parent from that place of knowing and understanding. And with that intention to help your child really fully be themselves. I like at the end when you said um, to grab a sticky note and journal about this question, what would I create in support of my child if I knew I would succeed? Mm -hmm. I think so often we're parenting from a place of fear, right? From a feeling that we're going to screw them up. But if we had some kind of guarantee, for instance, I think in the homeschool community, the question is always, what about high school? How will I get him into college? But what if you could just assume that college would happen regardless? Mm-hmm. How would you parent them in high school? What would that look like? How would that be different than if you're parenting from fear, which is I'm trying to marshal this kid into the look of a traditional student to guarantee college, which may not even actually be the right choice for this neurodivergent kid. But what if you could just take that off the table? Is that where you were headed with this because, oh my gosh, it aligns so much with how I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think we get so caught in the how of things and, and that's very fear driven that we forget about the what, and the, what is really rooted in like, like I said, what would you create? What would this look like? What would an ideal thing be for us? And really focusing on the right now, because we have no idea what, 
their journey is going to look like. And there's no one way that a child's life should unfold or there's no right path for anybody. And it is really hard sometimes to just kind of stop, you know, the presses and just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, again, throw out the rule book and think what, if I could create anything for this human, what would that actually be? And to like quiet the voice that's being, well, but you can't do that because, or you can't do this. You know, that is that fear that concerned the, um, especially of, you know, screwing up our kid, making the wrong choice. Um, all of those things, the, the stakes feel really high, especially as our kids get older. Oh yeah. And there is, you know, this idea that we, you know, high school, college, and, um, and also it has to happen on this timeline, which seems super arbitrary and not really realistic for who kids are and what they're experiencing. Um, so I think giving yourself the time to just dream and scheme, what would this look like? And then feel how good that feels like that freeing sense and, and really do that from a place of love and possibility. And then, you know, you can maybe write down the fears, but then you could just be like, okay, I hear you, but I'm going to hang out in this zone and think, how can I create a little bit more of this feeling with what's happening in our life right now? Yeah. You talk about the energy transfer of a parent's energy onto the child, which I just loved the way you phrased that because I talk a lot about context in the learning environment. And when we come with a lot of anxiety or we come with a lot of sort of, um, preoccupation with what the child is doing that meets whatever our expectations are, the child picks that up. And if it feels like something they cannot do, and this is what my son Noah had to teach me, that what I expected he could not do. It wasn't that he would not do it. It's that the constitution of who he was could not meet the design. And so that's when I had to blow up the design, like Mm -hmm. start from scratch, get curious, be interested in what actually brought him to life. Mm-hmm. And so the energy going forward had to be optimism, had to be wide open spaces, experimentation, risk and adventure. It couldn't be script and enforcement, mm-hmm. <laughs> which seems to be a parenting strategy that a lot of parents use when they're feeling the most over their skis and out of control, right? Over their skis. I love that. Yeah. I mean, we want to control things because we want guarantees. It yeah. feels safer to be able, but we don't, none of us have control over anything. It's certainly not who our kids are. And, you know, we know that kids will kind of push back on anything anyway. So I think, again, it's checking, checking yourself. I had a pretty uh, aggressive agenda when I started homeschooling, you know, and all kinds of plans, because I was like, this is a huge responsibility. I can't screw this up for my kid. And we're going to do this, this, and this, if I'm going to homeschool, I'm going to do, do the best job, you know? And that was really painful to realize this is not going to work. This was not like Asher had his own agenda and it was very different from mine. And so, you know, it took us years to really kind of sort it out. It got better and better every year, but that energy piece is really, it's still something I, I struggle with because, you know, I can open up Facebook and suddenly I can, you know, get triggered or concerned about something. And then I take that energy into a conversation with my child about homework or something. And that's not helpful because our kids are very sensitive and they totally, you know, 
they read that energy. And if you think about co-regulation, like we can just keep feeding each other and get ourselves really worked up in a, in a big way. And so managing our own energy, the power of that cannot be overstated. Let's just say. Gosh, I, that's the part. If I could redo something in my parenting, it would be, um, learning how to manage my own reactivity, right? Mm -hmm. What you just said is so accurate. You're going along living your life. And then one person makes a random comment at a soccer field about her daughter in third grade with the writing packet. And you think, good God, have I done any writing for the last month? And then the next morning, your poor child's sitting over the cereal and you're like, today's the day we're going to write. And you've already decided in your mind, it's a paragraph of five sentences. It must be beautiful. The spelling must look good. Mm -hmm. And then your poor child who was just going along to get along can feel the intensity of this expectation and they can't perform under those conditions, nor should they have to, because really all you're asking them to do is deal with your emotional crisis. It really, at that point has nothing to do with their education. That's such a good, our own stuff. Right. hundred percent. Right. Well, this has been just fabulous. I find it really helpful what would be the final sort of piece of advice you would give to a parent who is suspecting they've got a differently wired child and they're starting to feel anxious about it and they don't know what the next steps are? Well, I would say that, first of all, just take a pause. Like you don't have to do anything right now. I think, you know, you just said starting to feel anxious. I think we often feel like, oh my gosh, I have to do this, this, and this, and it has to happen early. And, you know, we can ask advice and then suddenly we're on waiting lists for six different, you know, therapists and stuff. Um, so I would say just give yourself a beat and to trust your intuition. Uh, I think that's really important, especially when we feel like we're out of our depth we may rely on people that doesn't actually feel good with us or is in, out of alignment with our, you know, our values and what we know to be true about our kids. And then lastly, I would just say, if your child is neurodivergent and you get this information It's just information and you do not need to fix your child. Your child is not broken. They are Mm -hmm. exactly who they are meant to be. They, like everybody, they have a unique brain. And so now you have more context to get curious and really get to know like, oh, cool. Like who is this person and, and how can we really help their strengths grow and how can we support them around things that can be more challenging? That is Absolutely gorgeous. I first of all love that you started with just pause <laughs> because there I was triggering the very activity I just said, <laughs> don't trigger. <laughs> uh, Debbie, thank you so much. Where can people learn more about your work? Well, thank you, Julie. I just love this conversation. I, we went all over the place and talked about stuff I we I don't usually get asked about. So I appreciate that and the work that you do. So thank you. Um, And if people want to learn more about my work, it is tiltparenting.com. That is kind of the home for everything. My podcast is there. There are more than 300 episodes with really lovely humans. Um, I have a community there. I have lots of free resources, including one that I just put up that might be of interest. It's a 10-day video series called 10 Things You Need to Know About Raising a Differently Wired Child. And it's the things I wish I had known when I discovered I was on this journey. So uh, and that's just also at tiltparenting.com slash 10 things. 
Oh my gosh, that's absolutely perfect. I know you'll get lots of takers on that offer. And I will put a link in the show notes to your book, Differently Wired. It's really well-written and has so much practical advice. So it's not just a theory book. It's a book where you can put things into application right away. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Julie. I hope that you enjoyed Debbie's conversation with me today. Her journey with her son, Asher, I find so inspiring. And it's great to realize that that can be the story of any one of our children. If you'd like more information about Debbie's work, please go to tiltparenting.com. We will put links to her Instagram and social media and website in the show notes. And I highly recommend her book, Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World. Lots of practical tips and support for you if you are in this situation where you are raising a child who lives out loud, who presents you with challenges that you were unfamiliar with before you had this kid. So glad you were with me today. As usual, I so appreciate you. We are well over 3 million downloads now of this podcast, and it's because of your beautiful subscriptions and reviews and shares. So keep the good going and thank you for supporting this podcast. Hey, Julie, Natalie here with the Brave Writer team, again with a five-star review. And this one comes from Carrie Schubert, one of my favorite homeschool podcasts. There is something about Julie and Brave Writer in general that is so comforting. I look forward to this podcast with every episode. I always end up refreshed, feeling like I really can do this. Julie is so very genuine, and I am so very grateful that I stumbled upon her and her company several years ago. She has changed my family's homeschool life for the better. Thanks, Carrie. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media, with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to The Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you.